0: Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse by verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Mormon, chapter three. This chapter is a continuation of Mormon's storytelling narrative. Within the broader context of retreat and defeat that is taking place in the lives of the Nephites, we did read of a Nephite victory at the end of the previous chapter. The Nephites had gathered in the city of Shem, as we read in verse 21 of Mormon chapter 2. As the Nephites gathered in this place, we expected as readers that a Lamanite attack would be inevitable. And so it's unsurprising in verse 22 that we read that the Lamanites began to come upon the Nephites again. In this instance, Mormon made a great effort to rouse the people and to remind them of what it was that they were defending, and he used language that was similar to the way in which he described Captain Moroni. So in verse 23, Mormon said, I did speak unto my people and did urge them with great energy that they would stand boldly before the Lamanites and fight for their wives and their children, and their houses and their homes. Then he told us of the effect of this, that it did arouse his people somewhat to vigor, as he put it. In this instance, then, in the city of Shem, the Nephites didn't retreat, and they stood with boldness, as Mormon put it in verse 24, as the Lamanites came upon them. And in fact, the Nephites were greatly outnumbered in this effort. We learned in verse 25 that the Nephites had 30,000 fighting troops, while the Lamanites had an army of 50,000. So this was a great victory for the Nephites, and it created enough momentum, in fact, that they pursued the Lamanites as they fled before them and were able to retake many of their lands. So this was the condition of things as we came to the end of the previous chapter in Mormon chapter 2, and in fact, after this Nephite victory, there was a treaty that was entered into between the Nephites and the Lamanites and the robbers of Gadianton. So as we come into this chapter, Mormon chapter 3, we can see that there is a relative period of peace that has followed this Nephite victory. We can really see, I think, that the Nephites have enjoyed the fruits of Mormon's leadership. By the end of this chapter, we'll discover that the people have forfeited Mormon's leadership entirely. This is because there's a similar pattern in Mormon chapter 3. After this 10-year period of peace, or perhaps it would be more accurately described as a 10-year period in which there was an absence of war, the Lamanites will once again come upon the Nephites. And this time, as the Lamanites come upon the Nephites, we will find that the Nephites are gathered in the land of desolation, and they defeat the attacking Lamanites twice in a two-year period. It is at this point that the Nephites will lose the leadership of Mormon, And why is this? What has changed? Well, we can see pretty clearly that this is because the Nephites are no longer fighting a defensive war, but they actually decide, in their vengeance, after they have boasted in their own strength, to go against the Lamanites. And Mormon will not lead them in an offensive war. So again, it is in this context that the people will lose Mormon's leadership at the end of this chapter, Mormon chapter 3. This episode might remind us that the Lord will go before us and will fight our battles, but we must do it on the Lord's terms. And just as Mormon taught in late Alma, as he was abridging that part of the record, the Lord doesn't support us when we undertake a campaign of revenge against our fellow man. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35 says, Vengeance is mine, and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come hasten upon them. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 19 say, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So again, as we consider our relationship with our fellow man, just as these people lost Mormon's leadership, we can lose the Lord's leadership if we indulge in a campaign of revenge towards our fellow man. As Mormon himself will quote the Lord in verse 15 of this chapter, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. With those introductory thoughts, let's look at the structure of this chapter. Mormon chapter 3 contains 22 verses. We can see in verses 1 through 4 that 10 years have passed since the treaty that took place at the end of the previous chapter. During this time, Mormon prepares his lands and his armies. He attempts, although unsuccessfully during this time, to also prepare them spiritually. This is a picture that he has painted before in his abridgment when the Nephites have prepared for war, of course, under Captain Moroni's leadership. Uh, he would prepare his lands by fortifying them, he would prepare his armies by giving them armor and teaching them critical skills, of course, and then he would prepare them spiritually. Here, this third spiritual component is not in place, as Mormon will point out, even though he invites them to repent and to be baptized. We can also see that in so doing, yet one more time, the concept of baptism, of true priesthood ordinances, are tied to the concept of repentance and change. In verses 5 through 8, we can see that this 10-year period of peace has come to an end and that the Lamanites will come upon the Nephites. Mormon has gathered his people into the land of desolation during this period of time as they've prepared for another inevitable attack. He has fortified this place and prepared the people well enough that they're able to defend themselves from the attacking Lamanites on two successive occasions in two successive years. And this then is where the turn takes place in the Nephite armies. In verses nine through 16, we can see that the Nephites boast in their own strength. And because of this, they decide to mount an offensive against the Lamanites. As verse nine tells us, they began to boast in their own strength and began to swear before the heavens that they would avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren who had been slain by their enemies. So this is the point at which Mormon refuses to lead the Nephites into a war of this type, saying again, that vengeance is mine and I will repay, and that the Lord will not offer his protection to his people when they undergo such a campaign. As we come to the end of verse 16, we can see that Mormon has finished the storytelling narrative for this chapter, and in the final section, verses 17 through 22, he will turn and speak to future readers. We can see that Mormon will do the same thing at the end of Mormon chapter five, When he does so here, he says in verse 17, that I write unto you Gentiles, and also unto you house of Israel. So he also calls them the remnants of this people, and reminds them of a concept taught by the Savior in the third Nephi chapter 27. Before he introduced the gospel to his disciples, he spoke of the inevitability of being lifted up before him in judgment. Mormon will make the same point here in this final section, saying that a judgment is inevitable, that all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the way to prepare for this eventuality is by repenting. Well, let's return now to verse 1 for a reading, remembering that at the end of the previous chapter, the Nephites entered into a treaty uh, with the Lamanites and with the Gadianton robbers. And now as we begin this chapter, we can see the results of that treaty, that there's a period of relative peace for 10 years. Verse 1, And it came to pass that the Lamanites did not come to battle again, until ten years more had passed away. And behold, I had employed my people, the Nephites, in preparing their lands and their arms against the time of battle. And it came to pass that the Lord did say unto me, Cry unto this people, repent ye, and come unto me, and be ye baptized, and build up again my church, and ye shall be spared. So here again we can see that this is a critical part of preparing the people during this period. They should be given another chance to align themselves spiritually with their heavenly father. And so the Lord instructs Mormon to prepare them in this specific way. Verse 1 told us that Mormon employed his people in preparing their lands and their arms against the time of battle. And now here is the spiritual component to that preparation. So verse 3, and I did cry unto this people, but it was in vain. So this is kind of in keeping with the expectations that Mormon has created for us in the previous chapter, where he thought perhaps that they were coming to a point of sorrow that would lead to their repentance, but instead he discovered that he was witnessing the sorrowing of the damned. So again, I did cry unto this people, but it was in vain. And they did not realize that it was the Lord that had spared them, and granted unto them a chance for repentance. And behold, they did harden their hearts against the Lord their God. So the most appropriate conclusion for this treaty that the people were able to come to and this season of relative peace was that this was a period of probation for the Nephites, a time for them to recognize the source of both their proximate and their ultimate salvation. But instead, as Mormon tells us, these efforts were in vain and the people did not realize that it was the Lord that had spared them. Reynolds and Sojal have written of this episode, Mormon's people were so steeped in sin, And had become so hardened to sensibility that they were no longer able to choose between good and evil, let alone see the right when opposed by that which was wrong. They had the idea that whatsoever pleased the fancy or gratified the demands of their carnal selves would bring happiness. Notwithstanding the offer the Lord made to spare them if they would repent, they did harden their hearts against the Lord their God. And of course, as we will see as the narrative goes on, this may have been the Nephites' last chance to listen to Mormon and to repent in this way. Verse four, and it came to pass that after this 10th year had passed away, making in the whole 360 years from the coming of Christ, the king of the Lamanites sent an epistle unto me, which gave unto me to know that they were preparing to come again to battle against us. So that is what will bring this 10 year period of peace to an end, is actually a letter from the king of the Lamanites announcing his intention to come to battle against Mormon and his people. Verse five, and it came to pass that I did cause my people that they should gather themselves together at the land desolation to a city which was in the borders by the narrow pass which led into the land southward. And there we did place our armies that we might stop the armies of the Lamanites that they might not get possession of any of our lands. Therefore, we did fortify against them with all our force. So we saw this effort in the previous chapter on two occasions of the Nephites to concentrate their force into one place. We also just read at the end of the previous chapter about the treaty that was entered into, which gave the land northward to the Nephites and the land southward to the Lamanites, and we read that those two lands were separated by a narrow neck of land. So it would make sense that the Nephites want to defend their land at this spot. So that seems to be where the land of desolation is. Verse 7 And it came to pass that in the 360 and first year, the Lamanites did come down to the city of desolation to battle against us. And it came to pass that in that year we did beat them, insomuch that they did return to their own lands again. Verse 8, And in the 360 and second year, they did come down again to battle. And we did beat them again, and did slay a great number of them, and their dead were cast into the sea. So we can see that this is Mormon's third successful defensive campaign across these two chapters, Mormon chapter 2 and Mormon chapter 3. Here now is where things take a turn for the worse, spiritually in particular, as the Nephites decide to mount an offensive against the Lamanites. Verse 9, And now, because of this great thing which my people the Nephites had done, they began to boast in their own strength. So once again, this is a great thing that the people had done, not that the Lord had done in preserving them. They had not merited that type of protection. They did this in their own strength. So they began to boast in their own strength and began to swear before the heavens that they would avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren who had been slain by their enemies. So again, this puts them in a precarious spiritual condition. Elder Neal Maxwell once said, and this was in an April 2002 conference report, Before enjoying the harvests of righteous efforts, Let us therefore first acknowledge God's hand. Otherwise the rationalizations appear and they include my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. Uh, The Israelites said that in Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. Or we vaunt ourselves as ancient Israel would have done except for Gideon's deliberately small army by boasting that mine own hand hath saved me. That expression is from Judges 7, verse 2. Touting our own hand makes it doubly hard to confess God's hand in all things. Verse 10, And they did swear by the heavens and also by the throne of God that they would go up to battle against their enemies and would cut them off from the face of the land. And it came to pass that I, Mormon, did utterly refuse from this time forth to be a commander and a leader of this people because of their wickedness and abomination. So here, of course, is where the people lose Mormon's leadership in battle. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says, in spite of Mormon leading his people for approximately 35 years. At this point, he refused to lead them. Mormon must have been influenced by the abridgment he was making of the Book of Mormon. He saw Captain Moroni's and Helaman's justifiable reasons to go to war, defending their lands, houses, wives, children, rights, privileges, liberty, and ability to worship. He taught the people these purposes of war. And we can read of that in Mormon chapter 2, the previous chapter, verses 23 through 24. After seeing the motivation the Nephites in his day had for fighting the Lamanites to avenge themselves, and that they began to boast in their own strength, and that they were guilty of great wickedness and abomination, he temporarily refused to lead their armies. Now we do come to find that this is temporary, that Mormon in chapter 5 will come back and lead them again. Daniel Ludlow has written, When the Nephite soldiers decided to attack the Lamanites first, Mormon refused to lead them in offensive war. This position was not only justified by earlier teachings of the prophets and the counsel of the Lord, but was also vindicated by subsequent events. The Nephite armies began to be defeated from that time forth. Neil W. Kramer has written, in a piece called Prophetic Principles for Building Zion, Mormon himself is profoundly troubled by the consequences of war that he witnessed. He laments, It is impossible for the tongue to describe, or for man to write a perfect description of the horrible scene of blood and carnage which was among the people, both of the Nephites and the Lamanites. And every heart was hardened so that they delighted in the shedding of blood continually. We'll read that expression in the next chapter, actually, when things have turned so dark and the people have lost Mormon's leadership. Now, Kramer continues, he condemns people who cause war, such as Amalickiah, Gidgadoni, Zarahemna, Amaron, and Amlici. He praises people who rise up against the truly wicked and defend their families, even to the shedding of their own blood, like Helaman, Captain Moroni, Teancum, Laconius. And he introduces us to the anti nephi Lehis, a people once so immersed in the wicked traditions of their warlike ancestors, that after their conversion they refuse to risk committing such sins by taking up arms. Mormon speaks of these people with deep respect. He says, When these Lamanites were brought to believe and to know the truth, they were firm and would suffer even unto death rather than commit sin. And thus we see that they buried their weapons of peace, or they buried the weapons of war for peace. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's were truly converted and chose to live for Zion. Again from Neil W. Kramer, showing us really that Mormon's abridgment has provided us with a foundation of teachings That helps to explain his actions in this chapter. Verse 12: Behold, says Mormon, I had led them, notwithstanding their wickedness, I had led them many times to battle, and had loved them according to the love of God which was in me with all my heart. And my soul had been poured out in prayer unto my God all the day long for them. What an interesting uh, profile of a military leader that would do such a thing. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. Uh, That's quite a fascinating uh, piece of insight into the nature of faith, I think, Uh, the collective aspect of faith. Uh, For Mormon to say that his prayers were without faith is most certainly not a comment on his own individual faith or on the faithfulness of the Lord and his willing to bless his people, but it has to do with the people for whom he is praying. The hardness of their hearts blocks them from receiving the blessings that the Lord would have them to receive and that Mormon would have them to receive, and so he says it was without faith. Ogden and Skinner have written, The general prophet cried repentance to his people and showed love toward them because he had the love of God in his own heart. He poured out his soul in prayer for them, but without faith because of their hardness. He could feel hope and charity for his people, but apparently he he had no faith in them, because they had rejected every word of God, and they were ripe in iniquity, and the fullness of the wrath of God was upon them. To quote from Helaman chapter 13 verse 38, They had arrived at the point that it was everlastingly too late, and their destruction was made sure. It's remarkable, I think, to see that in Mormon's frustration with these people, he had been praying for them, and he had loved them according to the love of God which was in him. Elder or Bishop Glenel L. Pace once said, This prophet had Christ-like love for a fallen people. Can we be content with loving less? We must press forward with the pure love of Christ to spread the good news of the gospel. As we do so and fight the war of good against evil, light against darkness, and truth against falsehood, we must not neglect our responsibility of dressing the wounds of those who have fallen in battle. There is no room in the kingdom for fatalism. Now, finally this from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland in his book Christ and the New Covenant. At one point, Mormon utterly refused to be the commander and leader of a people so wicked, so ignorant, so bent on self-destruction. It was a wrenching time for him because these were his people and he loved them. Indeed, he loved them with all of his heart. Furthermore, he had poured out his soul in prayer all the day long for them. But alas, such earnest prayer— and we can scarcely imagine a more loving and faithful effort on behalf of a people, was by Mormon's own admission uttered without faith because of the hardness of the hearts of the people. Verse 13, Mormon continues, and thrice have I delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. Remember there was one such instance at the end of the previous chapter when Mormon roused the people like Captain Moroni of old, reminded them of what it was that they were defending, and then there were these two instances in two successive years, where they defended the Lamanites. So he says, And thrice have I delivered them out of the hands of their enemies, and they repented not of their sins. And when they had sworn by all that had been forbidden them by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that they would go up unto their enemies to battle and avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren, behold, the voice of the Lord came unto me, saying, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And because this people repented not after I had delivered them, behold, they shall be cut off from the face of the earth. Now, that scriptural language, vengeance is mine and I will repay. I read a section from Deuteronomy that used this phrase, and also one, of course, from the book of Romans in the introduction to this chapter. So, when Mormon says that the voice of the Lord came to him saying this thing, when the Lord did speak to him, he did so with scriptural language. That gives us insight then into how the Lord can speak to us. Sometimes, perhaps, it's in the form of us recalling scriptural language. That can apply to our current situation. President Joseph F. Smith is taught in gospel doctrine with regard to the idea that the Lord does not support us in a campaign of vengeance. Men are not called upon to curse mankind. That is not our mission. It is our mission to preach righteousness to them. It is our business to love and to bless them and to redeem them from the fall and from the wickedness of the world. This is our mission and our special calling. God will curse and will exercise his judgment in those matters. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will repay. We are perfectly willing to leave vengeance in the hands of God and let him judge between us and our enemies and let him reward them according to his own wisdom and mercy. Verse 16, and it came to pass that I utterly refused to go up against mine enemies. And I did even as the Lord had commanded me and I did stand as an idle witness to manifest unto the world the things which I saw and heard, according to the manifestations of the Spirit, which had testified of things to come. Very interesting language there by Mormon. He decided to stand as an idle witness. And remember, this is the leader of the Nephite armies that is making this decision, so it would have had great impact upon the people. Ogden and Skinner have summarized this episode by saying two victories over the Lamanites in the land of desolation gave the Nephites a false sense of power and security. Again, they failed to recognize that it was the Lord who was the real source of both. Mormon refused to add to their self-deception by continuing to be their leader. Without a prophet-commander, the people violated the Lord's principle of defensive warfare. And they sought to avenge the blood of their brethren and comrades by initiating an attack on their enemy. Furthermore, the Nephites swore oaths by heaven. The very thing the Lord had forbidden during his Sermon at the Temple in Bountiful, and in the Sermon on the Mount in the Old World. When Ogden and Skinner, by the way, referenced this principle of defensive warfare, that can be found in Doctrine and Covenants section 98, verses 33-48. through And here is that passage, and again, this is the law that I gave unto mine ancients, says verse 33 of Doctrine and Covenants section 98 that they should not go out unto battle against any nation, kindred, tongue, or people, save I the Lord commanded them. And if any nation, tongue, or people should proclaim war against them, they should first lift a standard of peace unto that people, nation, or tongue. And if that people did not accept the offering of peace, neither the second nor the third time, they should bring these testimonies before the Lord. Then I the Lord would give unto them a commandment, and justify them in going out to battle against that nation, tongue, or people. And I the Lord would fight their battles and their children's battles and their children's children's, until they had avenged themselves on all their enemies to the third and fourth generation. Behold, this is an ensample unto all people, saith the Lord your God, for justification before me. And again, verily I say unto you, if after thine enemy has come upon thee the first time, he repent, and come unto thee praying thy forgiveness. Thou shalt forgive him, and shalt hold it no more as a testimony against thine enemy. We can think about how Captain Moroni typified what is being outlined here in this passage. And so on unto the second and third time. And as oft as thine enemy repenteth of the trespass wherewith he has trespassed against thee, thou shalt forgive him until seventy times seven. And if he trespasses against thee and repent not the first time, nevertheless thou shalt forgive him, And if he trespasses against thee the second time and repent not, nevertheless thou shalt forgive him. And if he trespasses against thee the third time and repent not, thou shalt also forgive him. But if he trespasses against thee the fourth time, thou shalt not forgive him, but shall bring these testimonies before the Lord, and they shall not be blotted out until he repent and reward thee fourfold in all things wherewith he has trespassed against thee. And if he do this, thou shalt forgive him with all thine heart. And if he do not this, I, the Lord, will avenge thee of thine enemy an hundredfold. And upon his children, and upon his children's children, of all them that hate me unto the third and fourth generation. But if the children shall repent, or the children's children, and turn to the Lord their God with all their hearts, and with all their might, mind, and strength, and restore fourfold all their trespasses wherewith they have trespassed, or wherewith their fathers have trespassed, or their fathers' fathers, then thine indignation shall be turned away. And vengeance shall no more come upon them, saith the Lord thy God, and their trespasses shall never be brought any more as a testimony before the Lord against them. Amen. Again, that's Doctrine in Covenants section 98, verses 33 through 48. And Ogden and Skinner referred to that as the Lord's principle of defensive warfare. That brings us to the end of the storytelling narrative portion of this chapter, and now Mormon will turn and speak to future readers in the final section of this chapter. As we apply, as I had mentioned in the introduction, we apply this concept of enacting vengeance upon our fellow man, and how it is that the people lost Mormon's support in so doing, and how it is that we lose the Lord's support in so doing, in our interpersonal relationships, This causes us then to think about our relationship with the Lord and about the way in which we access his grace and the need for accessing his grace. So when we are in this frame of mind, we then move into this final section that Mormon is providing us with where he talks about an inevitable judgment that uh, awaits all of us and that necessitates our repentance. So that's kind of a nice way of seeing how this storytelling narrative flows in to this final statement by Mormon. So now he will speak to future readers in verse 17. Therefore I write unto you, Gentiles, and also unto you, house of Israel, when the work shall commence that ye shall be about to prepare to return to the land of your inheritance. Yea, behold, I write unto all the ends of the earth. Yea, unto you, twelve tribes of Israel, who shall be judged according to your works by the twelve whom Jesus chose to be his disciples in the land of Jerusalem. And I write also unto the remnant of this people, who shall be judged by the twelve whom Jesus chose in this land, and they shall be judged by the other twelve whom Jesus chose in the land of Jerusalem. So for all of us, an inevitable day of judgment is on the horizon, where we will stand before God in this way. Bruce R. McConkie has taught the reality is that there will be a whole hierarchy of judges who, under Christ, shall judge the righteous. He alone shall issue the decrees of damnation for the wicked. And Joseph Fielding Smith has taught, The Apostle John taught that the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. The Son, in turn, will call upon others to assist in the judgment. The twelve who are with him in his ministry will judge the twelve tribes of Israel. The twelve Nephite disciples will judge the Nephite and Lamanite people. Verse 20, Mormon says, And these things doth the Spirit manifest unto me. Therefore I write unto you all, and for this cause I write unto you, that ye may know that ye must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, yea, every soul who belongs to the whole human family of Adam, and ye must stand to be judged of your works, whether they be good or evil. So this clearly includes all, even those who deny the existence of Christ, they too will stand before him because they too belong to the whole human family of Adam. Ogden and Skinner have written, in the midst of Mormon's lamentable tale, he taught the doctrine of judgment. There seems to be a hierarchy of judges at the great and final judgment. Besides the great judge himself, the Son of God, under the direction of the Father, there is a series of other judges by whom we must pass in order to enter the presence of God. The twelve apostles Jesus chose in the Holy Land will judge all the twelve tribes of Israel, And the twelve apostles Jesus chose in ancient America will judge this remnant of Israel under the direction of that Old World Quorum. In our day, another dimension in the hierarchy of judgment is added. No one will be saved in glory, but under the direction and judgment of the head of this last dispensation, the great prophet Joseph Smith. Brigham Young said, No man or woman in this dispensation will ever enter into the celestial kingdom of God without the consent of Joseph Smith. Many passages of Scripture unequivocally confirm that every soul who has ever lived on earth will be judged. The criteria for judgment are these 1. Degree of knowledge and opportunities available during mortal probation, and several references are given there. 2. Works, desires, and intents of the heart. 3. Information on records kept both on earth and in heaven. 4. A personal knowledge that an individual's reward is just and that the judgment constitutes a proper decision. So a four-part synopsis by Ogden and Skinner of the criteria for final judgment when we stand before God, and they have many scriptural references for each of these four, so that's a great thing to to seek out and to read and study. Here's a wonderful statement by President Thomas S. Monson as we consider this uh, inevitable coming day for each of us. He says, "...the tenor of our times is permissiveness." All around us, we see the idols of the movie screen, the heroes of the athletic field, those whom many young people long to emulate as disregarding the laws of God and rationalizing away sinful practices, seemingly with no ill effect. Don't you believe it? There is a time of reckoning, even a balancing of the ledger. Every Cinderella has her midnight. It's called Judgment Day, even the big exam of life. Are you prepared? Are you pleased with your own performance? Verse 21, and also that ye may believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, which ye shall have among you. Now notice again the order here. Mormon is connecting an inevitable day of judgment with the need for us to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what prepares us for that event. And that's precisely the way that the Savior presented his gospel in Third Nephi chapter 27. So now as the verse goes on and Mormon is saying that ye shall have this gospel among you. He then says, and also that the Jews, the covenant people of the Lord, shall have other witness besides him who they saw and heard, that Jesus whom they slew was the very Christ and the very God. This seems to be a reference to other scriptural witnesses, that Jesus Christ is the very Christ and the very God. Ogden and Skinner have said, Gentiles and Jews, remember that is who Mormon is speaking to here, shall have the gospel of Jesus Christ available to them in the last days, they shall also have other witness that Jesus is the very Christ and the very God. The Book of Mormon is not just another witness of the living Christ, it is the best witness. Bruce R. McConkie has written, The process of gathering is now and always will be one in which the scattered remnants of Jacob, those of all tribes, believe the Book of Mormon, accept the restored gospel and come to the latter-day Zion. As far as the gathering of Israel is concerned, The Book of Mormon is the most important book that ever has been or ever will be written. It is the book that gathers Israel. It is the Book of Mormon that causes people to believe the gospel and join the church. And as we have heretofore seen, it is the power that brings to pass the gathering of Israel. President Spencer W. Kimball has taught the gathering of Israel consists of joining the true church and their coming to a knowledge of the true God. Any person, therefore, who has accepted the restored gospel— and who now seeks to worship the Lord in his own tongue and with the saints in the nations where he lives, has complied with the law of the gathering of Israel and is heir to all of the blessings promised the saints in these last days. And now for the final verse in this chapter, verse 22, Mormon concludes this statement to future readers, Jews and Gentiles alike, by saying, And I would that I could persuade all ye ends of the earth to repent and prepare to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is a state of motive really we can think about how nephi at the very beginning of the book of mormon talked about the fullness of mine intent so something similar i think is happening here with mormon ogden and skinner have said that mormon told us why he expended such effort in relating this sad tale and it's to persuade all men to prepare to meet god and to help all readers understand how they can be happy and safe as we've come to the end of this chapter Here's commentary from the Book of Mormon Institute Manual that does cover a quote that I had read from earlier from Elder Bruce R. McConkie, but then flows into a list of those five sources who will take part on our Judgment Day, which we read of earlier from Joseph F. Smith, but I'll review it again here as it's presented in the Book of Mormon Institute Manual. Elder Bruce R. McConkie taught, The reality is that there will be a whole hierarchy of judges, who under Christ shall judge the righteous— he alone shall issue the decrees of damnation for the wicked. The scriptures teach that there will be at least five sources who will take part on Judgment Day, and there are many scriptural references for each of these. One, ourselves. Two, our bishops. Three, the scriptures. Four, the apostles. And five, Jesus Christ. President John Taylor further elaborated on the role of the apostles in our judgment. He said Christ is at the head, it would seem to be quite reasonable, if the twelve apostles in Jerusalem are to be judges of the twelve tribes, and the twelve disciples on this continent are to be the judges of the descendants of Nephi, that the brother of Jared and Jared should be the judges of the Jaredites, their descendants, and further, that the first presidency and the twelve who have officiated in our age should operate in regard to mankind in this dispensation. Well, this chapter then ends with these thoughts on judgment, And begins, of course, with a promising period for the Nephites that ends in tragedy, really, where the Lord tells Mormon to no longer lead the people. Instead, Mormon will stand as an idle witness to their wickedness. These are the conditions that will prevail then as we move into Mormon chapter 4. The Nephite armies will execute upon their intent to perpetrate vengeance and violence upon the Lamanites and to go on the offense in a campaign where they are truly unsupported by the Lord. So this is what is to come in Mormon chapter 4. For now, this brings us to the end of Mormon chapter 3. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media, and to write a review on iTunes, you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon and the revised edition of Thomas R. Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture, as well as general conference addresses that come to mind, also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that his attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know him better. So, have a wonderful day, keep in touch, and thank you for listening.